From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The scene is a balmy August evening in rural Wiltshire almost a hundred years ago. Near the small town of Lark Hill stood the first military airfield in this country, just about a mile from Stonehenge. On that night, the place is a hive of activity because number three Squadron Royal Flying Corps are preparing for tomorrow's deployment for France with the British Expeditionary Force. The beer is warm over here and across the channel the white wine is equally warm. And the squadron know about that. Three squadron, their motto, the third shall be first, because they were the first Royal Flying Corps squadron. Their role in their B-2 aircraft when they get to France, at least initially, was photo reconnaissance. But between them, the entire Royal Flying Corps had just six cameras. This is perhaps somewhat surprising considering the crucible of the invention of modern photography lay under 30 miles away at Laycock Abbey and Fox Talbot there looking very stern was indeed the inventor and clearly there were no technology clusters then but perhaps not so odd when we remember that in those earliest days of military aviation, we had a Royal Flying Corps whose perception of navigation and the technology applied to navigation was to equip pilots with the Bradshaw Railway Guide and seek to have the names of stations painted on the roofs. But even at that early stage, the characteristics of air power were such that ISR, as we now call it, Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance, was becoming a very prominent role, and for good reasons. And it's an aspect of the history of military aviation that has pushed out the boundaries of technology. Interestingly, before that, some 20 years before that, an example of inward investment into the UK in that new technology is the Kodak Works in Harrow. Their first ever factory and research establishment outside the United States. But in those far-off days, government industrial strategy in terms of the development of aviation, and pretty much right up to the 1930s, was haphazard to say the least. It relied heavily on private venture funding, and we have much to thank those early pioneers for in terms of their both their tenacity and uh, their commercial creativity. And one such pioneer, as you've heard, undoubtedly was Tommy Sopwith, whose memory and achievements we mark tonight. His seed corn funding arose from winning a £4,000 prize, that's just less than a million pounds today, for the longest flight from England to the continent. And... Throughout that period, that allowed him to invest in the flying school that he created at Brooklands, the famous Sopwith Flying School. And thereafter, as you heard, he set up uh, Hawker Aviation with Harry Hawker, but not before producing 18,000 aircraft during the First World War 
and 5,747 of the famous Sopwith Camel. The company undoubtedly operated in difficult circumstances. There were no patrons then, or very few, and there were certainly no venture capitalists. So with that as an introduction, um, I bid you a very good evening, and I thank you for coming. I thank you for your triumph, if not your triumph, in getting past the obstacles of the Tour de France. But my subject tonight was prompted particularly by a growing recognition from government on the nature and importance of deep science, which I think really broke cover during the potential takeover of uh, AstraZeneca by Pfizer, because we were hearing language that was more about more than just jobs alone. And I make that contrast because in 2011, when Pfizer announced they were closing their European R&D headquarters down at Sandwich in Kent, we just heard about jobs from government. We didn't hear anything about the impact on science and research and development. So something has changed. And this evening, I want to explore the role of research and technology in the future sustainability of the UK's aerospace industry, both defense and civil. And it's a great honor for me to deliver this Sopwith lecture and uh, undoubtedly um, is a absolutely fitting aspect that we presented prizes for the best papers of 2013 this evening because the role of the society in expanding, sustaining and nurturing the body of knowledge which is aerospace is fundamental. It's a fundamental aspect of the ecosystem I'm going to talk about tonight. So my congratulations to the winners. And a health warning, I am speaking tonight solely as a fellow of this society. I am not speaking as a Finn Mechanica executive, although they're paying for the reception and I use my house slide pack. I am not speaking as uh, the VP Defence in ADS in the Trade Association. So it is just me. So why? Well, the implications, what I want to do is just lay out the implications for the UK science base and take a view on government industrial strategy in what I think is probably the most important area of our economy, particularly in relation to the Technology Strategy Board and the catapults and the Aerospace Growth Partnership and the Defence Growth Partnership. We are in an era of export-led recovery, and so these numbers are important to us. And the defence export market there is over seven years, whereas the civil market is out to 2030. So these are significant markets by any measure, but more broadly, we simply do not manufacture enough in this country. Right now, it's only 11% of GDP. To be realistic, we should be up close to 20%. So, let's see where we currently are. And this sums it up pretty well. This was the statement in the communique at the end of 2013, which preceded the EU Council at heads of government level. And whenever I 
give a presentation or a lecture, I generally say, if it's in red, it's important. And as you can see here, there is this notion that we're living on borrowed time in the defense enterprise and serious implications for its long-term competitiveness and therefore its sustainability. And the problem here is this is not an easy sector in which to operate, certainly in Europe. Your customers are few. The market is heavily regulated. There is competition for access to capital. And you've got to generate competitive returns for your shareholders, whilst at the same time earn those, uh, those returns while investing in the next generation of technology. Uh, sometimes with an extremely long lead time. So just looking at the figures in Europe for the period 2006 to 2012, you can see the most prominent, of course, is that defence spending overall has decayed to 190 billion euro, and that is 12% less in real terms than it was in 2006. Now, interestingly, the impact of that has been somewhat clouded. Certainly for the first decade of the 21st century, revenues in the European defense and security industrial sector actually grew from 58 to 98 billion euro. That's a 57% rise or a compound annual growth rate of 4.7%. So how can this be? And this at a time when equipment spending <clears throat> acquisition spending in Europe was flat? Well, the answer is that there was a huge migration to the most obvious parallel sector, just post 9-11, security and all, in all its forms became prominent. Equally, exports, and particularly exports to the United States, continued unabated. And from 2003 to 2010, 25 billion euro of that 90 billion came from the US. But that growth stopped dead with sequestration because sequestration didn't actually cut in or have effect until 2011. So there is a set of circumstances which begins to create a perfect storm. And the question then is immediately asked, well, can cross-border consolidation lead the agenda here? And maybe that's something we'll take up in, uh, in discussion. But it's the addressable market and long-term growth in that market that determines where global companies will invest. And in that sense, we look for stability of intent, stability of action on behalf of a government, and pull-through in the research and development that we are enticed to do onshore. And hitherto, the UK has been a very good place for inward investment. It's a very open but extremely competitive market, but we quite like competition. The uh, UK is a discriminating customer whose operational kite mark really means something in the global market, and particularly with export customers. And it's a good springboard for exports itself, uh, not least to the uh, US, but also because of the long historical and diplomatic ties that the UK enjoys in various regions of the world. But most importantly of all, it has very deep roots in science. And it has a total ecosystem. So if there is a legacy brand, a sort of brand UK, 
which is now, in a sense, not going to be underpinned by the customer, it relies predominantly on those deep roots in science. And therefore, the notion of creating intellectual property onshore becomes paramount. Now, is it any better in the civil sector? Here's the statement from the Aerospace Growth Partnership Strategy document. And once again, you get the sense that although the business drivers are different in civil aerospace, the sense of living on borrowed time is absolutely there. It's a common theme. And in particular, yesterday's investment in R&D is not being sustained in a way that fuels future sustainability. So how do we explain this? Well, it's down probably to two things. One, inevitably market forces, but also the inexorable direction of travel that's existed in terms of privatization and denationalizing um, aerospace firms. And here's some interesting analysis, and I'm indebted to Nick Cook, who's the CEO of Dynamics for this. But essentially, it says and shows us what was happening in the Cold War era. And uh, the key achievements and the motivation of higher, further, faster, get to the moon, win the Cold War, and then the societal benefits that existed. And uh, you know, these are well-known internet, GPS, jet travel, etc., etc. So this was what was going on up to the very early 80s. And I chose to emphasize October the 3rd, 1967, which is when the Bell X-15 uh, got to Mach 6.72, because that's the day I went to university to read physics. And my generation grew up with that. We grew up in that era of research that led to very high-speed flight, human space flight, and all the other things that stimulate the imagination. It was a glamorous time to be part of the aerospace ecosystem, and we really were motivated by that. Now, I think that's important. It's so important, I'm going to ring it in red, and I'm going to come back to it. But then we get to this. The external dynamics change dramatically. We see the impact of the change in momentum of governments feeding research and development. We see the impact of a market-facing industry that had to reduce cost, that had to avoid risk, and had to maximize shareholder value. If you didn't do that, you would die. And the result, those negative aspects, an innovation crisis, public perception, engineer drought, etc. And those internal and external dynamics represent a hugely powerful change. They drive, they're powerful in driving change. And in terms of business sustainability, the results are deeply embedded and they're very, very difficult to reverse. So again, I think the results are worth pondering on. So I'll come back to those. But the dynamics work goes one step further, and it posits that we're actually at a major inflection point because of the global challenges in terms of things familiar to you, healthcare, environment, energy um, control and consumption. 
and much of the nascent and, and, and relatively advanced defense technology should be transferable. Now, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I do recognize that the sort of process binding and cultural impediments that exist in the defense industry militate against that. And it's a live discussion, but again, it's something we may want to pick up in questions. But there's also something else happening. There's a reverse flow in that you have things like SpaceX Core, which is a business out of PayPal, um, and they're into the Falcon launch vehicle and they're challenging traditional um, players such as Boeing and, uh, and Airbus. Equally, Google and their Titan Aerospace with high altitude UAVs as a comms relay for broadband and getting broadband into places that uh, wouldn't normally be amenable. Solution in this country is satellite, but there is another solution. As Tom Enders pointed out a couple of weeks ago, uh, these guys are young, they're entrepreneurial, they're agile, and they're digitally very savvy. So is this important? Does it matter to our technology ecosystem? Well, let's have a look at this, and I'll help you on the eye test in a minute. This is a list of the top 20 STEM universities in the world, published every year by QS, and it covers research, research assessment, research citations, and teaching assessment. And uh, there are 10 US universities there, three from the UK, save your eyesight, it's Cambridge at number three, Imperial at number six, and Oxford at number nine. If we'd gone back 20 years, there would have been 14 American, two European, and the remainder would have been British. Um, so that's what it looks like now. And if we then take away the United States and the UK, then we're seeing a couple of European ones, and we're seeing the inexorable rise of China, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So that's what it looks like right now. And that has been a trend which has been obvious from 2008. STEM research is the lifeblood of our ecosystem system, as is teaching, because it's the people who ultimately make the system work. Now, here in the UK, we have a almost unique, if we can be almost unique, sort of ecosystem in that we have an enormously capable and solid academic base. But we also have charities and foundations who fund and stimulate research. Cancer UK, the Wellcome Foundation. We have learned societies such as this one, and it's a very good example of leading edge thinking in this science and technology ecosystem. We have think tanks as well. We have world-class think tanks in London, and they all contribute to sustain and extend the body of knowledge which is our business and they do that over a very long time. So if you are creating intellectual property onshore in this country you are able to tap into it and you become part of it and that's why it matters. It matters also because there's stuff going on elsewhere. And this is a tool I use to try and compare like with like. It shows the output of some nations in terms of intellectual property, by which I define as 
patents, registered industrial design, and also trademarks. And it's normalized for GDP per capita. So you get a sense of the engine room of an economy that is producing intellectual property. Um, blue is the US, um, a gentle upward trend as we would expect in a, uh, an advanced nation. Green is India, um, not growing as expected. And red is China, apparently accelerating away. And maybe that's true, but the build value of Chinese domestic aerospace production is predicted to be $15 billion by 2022. And UK civil aerospace expects exports to China uh, to grow accordingly. And in fact, 23%, uh, they grew by 23% last year as a result of COMAC going into a narrow body jet to compete with um, the Western counterparts. On the defense side, and this is according to IHS Jane's, China's defense industrial sector employs more people and is engaged in more R&D programs than any other nation in the world. And it's a chilling thought that a large uh, proportion of that is going on the development of precision weapons. But what about China's economy? Interestingly, as is typical, as a nation becomes more developed, its labor costs are going up. And right now, 20% of global manufacturing is performed in China. As an example, the Apple iPad um, uses a company known as Foxconn to make the screens. It happens to be in Shenzhen in China. And last year, their labor costs went up 15% for semi-skilled and 25% for skilled. Those are significant changes in your cost base when you're a volume product, producer of consumer electronics with a long supply chain. And actually, taking account of the logistic costs of having a supply chain extended into China against the increase in labor rates, it is predicted in California that by 2015, the production costs will be the same. So the temptation, obviously, will be to insure. Also in China, as is well documented, there is high dependency on credit, something now, as far as we can tell, 200, 210% of GDP. And it was 130% GDP in 2008. So this has accelerated, and you can see the blip that follows that. Um, just as a benchmark, Italy is at 130% now. Now, most of that is in the shadow banking sector, which is subject to, uh, if I said loose regulation, I'd probably be uh, dignifying it. But uh, there's a vast credit bubble out there of undetermined size without regulation. And it's been interesting to watch foreign direct investment from China, which was rampant in the West in uh, up to a period of about three years ago for the preceding five, but now is tailing off because most of the investment is going internally into China, into infrastructure products such as roads through the Gobi Desert, vast tech cities with lots of uh, apartments in which nobody wants to live. And that's fine, any country can make those sorts of decisions, but when you're looking at the return on capital, then those sorts of investments are pretty much dead ends. So is China going to plateau? Well, the jury's out, and uh, it isn't all plain sailing. It could be 
like India. So why is India like that? Well, the top-rated Indian university in the STEM league table is at number 52. And uh, that a lot of people find surprising. Um, the, it's the Indian Institute of Technology, which was one of those technology centers that uh, we set up in 1948-1949. But what is happening in India is probably um, being played out uh, over the Dasso um, order for the Rafale in that India has not developed the depths of skills and management expertise to guarantee quality, timeliness, and to operate to cost. And this is acting, certainly in the, um, the non-IT areas, it's acting as a significant uh, barrier to progress. And so it's interesting to see how they'll get out of that. How will they develop the generation who will buy in to the requirements of Western companies for advanced manufacturing? And India's future depends on that. So when you look at defense R&T against this, and I've put some figures on the side there, then you see that the US and Europe are in negative growth, and I can't see that changing for some time whilst the Middle East and North Africa are in positive 4.6, Southeast Asia 5.48. Yes, they're starting from different baselines, but in terms of feeding an ecosystem, that's what really, really counts. So again, our investment decisions as global companies is actually all about the addressable market. Where's the long growth going to come from? Where's the stability of intent? Where will we get the R&D traction that we need? Where will it get pulled through? And we have to take an active and assertive approach to this, particularly in these, um, these new markets. Otherwise, <clears throat> our shareholders vote with their feet and their wallets. Competition is intense, make no mistake. In a lot of these uh, new markets, Russia and increasingly China has a foothold and everywhere you go, you're up against US companies. So the danger, as seen from Europe, <coughs> as was said on the first um, the communique from the summit, is that technology transfer has to follow when you move into new markets, and ultimately that will be to the detriment of the uh, R&D ecosystem in Europe. And that is an absolutely fundamental issue. So. What do we need to do? In terms of aerospace technology and science research business model that sits underneath it, there are two interlinked problems in my view. The first, known colloquially as the valley of death on the pull-through of, uh, of technology, and the second on the program life cycle itself. Now these two are, uh, are absolutely interlinked. And, and in all of this, we have to remember that leading-edge technology is expensive. So I'll use a NASA example because it is, um, it's not one that will offend anybody uh, from a company in this room. But <clears throat> it tells us two things, first of all. Um, at TRL 1 and 2, when you're on the bench in universities or in the lab in an industry, um, then you're probably down at 1980. Um, to get up to a product that is um, marketable and uh, beginning to get traction is 2005-ish. So, you know, 25 years of long, hard slog. Um, 
Much of that about the gestation of the technology. Much of it, of course, a, uh, an assault on cash flow because time is cost. And also um, a risk in terms of investment versus the likelihood of pull through to market, which puts capital at risk. And here, in a sense, um, civil and defense are different because in the civil world, you can um, pretty much recognize that you've got a containable problem in terms of engine airframe combinations and avionics. Whereas in the defense world, you're adding sensors um, which may be well at the leading edge of technology. You're adding, you're adding the software that's required to drive them, and you have to integrate them in a way that uh, makes them usable. Um, but that nascent technology is absolutely key. It exists in universities. It exists potentially in SMEs. And funding its gestation through the valley of death, which I, uh, I outline in purple there, is a key challenge, as is managing the intellectual property that exists within it. And those are aspects that have vexed those of us in high-tech uh, engineering businesses for more than a generation. And whilst the solutions aren't new, we are now entering an era where there is concerted effort, certainly in the UK, to solve those problems. And the other aspect is this, the standard life cycle for, uh, in this case, a civil aircraft. As you can see, it's cash negative for a long time. So if you want to get into this business, you need a big balance sheet. You've got to be prepared to put your balance sheet at risk. And um, sitting in that dwell where the red arrow is, there's um, clearly development tank, uh, challenges. There will be some technology gen uh, gestation. But there might also be novel production techniques. And the Boeing 787 is a good example where uh, totally different supply chain mechanism, different methods of uh, building fuselages, wings, and large surfaces, and then bringing them all together. So, you know, that dwell is where your capital and cash flow is at risk. It's also where the valley of death actually lives. But large offtakes means large rewards. We look at a military example, and if we look at JSF, Joint Strike Fighter, because it's... Um, in terms of offtake, it's um, more redolent of a civil aircraft than it would be of a military aircraft in Europe, then the total cost of the US's 2,293, or current perceived offtake, is now $332 billion, of which $62 billion is below the line R&D. It's where the red arrow is. Now, shareholders don't like that. There is no business model that says our shareholders are going to see that sort of uh, amount of capital put at risk, which is why governments and the customer paying for the R&D of these sorts of complex systems is the norm, and that's what's being placed at risk. Interestingly, on JSF, you take the whole total um, program lifestyle, um, including 55 years of support, Consistently, the General Accounting Office are now saying that looks like $1 trillion. So this is a big and expensive enterprise which ties up a lot of shareholder capital and uh, requires a steady nerve. So how would we deal with that dip in Europe? Would we compete each other to death and potentially um, you know, to arrive at survival of the fittest and potentially lose technology along the way? 
Would we consolidate, which is problematic, as we've seen already in the recent past, where you have state ownership or state influence? Or will we just retrench and become a business, a collection of businesses that run strategic subsystems and assembly, in other words, build to print? Um, and that um, leaves you at the mercy of whoever supply chain you're in. But that is the civil aviation model in this country. So where are the solutions to this? And uh, you might say, are there any solutions? Well, I think there is, because um, there are valiant attempts within government now to address these sorts of problems, all of them collaborative with industry, and I think stimulated by a recognition of the huge value of the UK's science, research, and development ecosystem across all the advanced manufacturing sectors. And so solution number one, I posit, is the catapults. Seven catapults with a total of 1.4 billion of investment between industry and government, of which 400 million is from government. But they follow the Fraunhofer Institute model. And we've, uh, from this lectern, we've heard oft times about the Fraunhofer model, but 67 institutes and research units, 23,000 staff, 1.6 billion euro, uh, all from the German government. And a uh, consistency of approach since 1948. Now, to be fair, the notion of catapults came out of the previous government. It was Peter Mandelson when he was Secretary of State for Business who recognized there was something that needed to be done. Created seven catapults. Um, the funding generally is a third government, a third private venture, and a third collaboration between venture partners. And um, it is run, they are run by the Technology Strategy Board. But interestingly, their, their strap line is access to world-leading technology and people, in other words, the ecosystem. And there's three types of inputs that the catapults receive. One is a challenge. Here is a technological problem where there must be a solution someone come up with an answer, form some teams, compete, do whatever, but a challenge. Secondly, technology. Here is some technology, be it uh, new devices, gallium nitride, or uh, new materials like graphene. There must be a really good use for this. Please find it out. Or the third is a sort of network, the connected digital economy. So the sum of all the parts will be greater than their uh, individual value, uh, thereby creating a shared knowledge base. Interestingly, uh, high-value manufacturing, as you see here, is further divided. And this is of significant interest to us in the aerospace business, because this is the catapult that we make most use of. And it's also interesting because 45% of the funding in the high-value manufacturing catapult is private venture. And just on the bottom there, it shows you what the funding mechanisms are across all the catapults. And there's an expectation uh, in TRLs 1 to 3, Technology Readiness Level 1 to 3, that this will be the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And then the Valley of Death, 4 to 7, funded by the Technology Strategy Board through the catapults. And then PV funding cuts in when you've got something you think is marketable and competitive. 
actually beginning to find that PV has a place down at TRL 6 or 7, particularly in a complex uh, program where you can form an alliance. So you have a number of companies who are willing to put skin in the game. This is attracting inward investment for R&D. And uh, in the case of uh, the advance of the high value manufacturing catapult, an automotive company. Right now in our country, only grad, uh, Jaguar Land Rover do their R&D onshore. Uh, the rest is build to print. Successful business as it might be, it uh, lives or dies on its cost base. But as you get more R&D being done onshore, then the more you build a sustainable business. And already in some of the complex areas of medicine, um, not least cell therapy, we're seeing uh, significant um, inward investment into the technologies and into the production part as well. So you'll be familiar with some of the locations, no doubt, and the one we all know best is the National Composite Centre at Bristol, where um, all the big primes in this country, Airbus, BA Systems and Augusta Westland, have um, a lot of activity. But the way in which the lower technology readiness level technology can be pulled through from SMEs and universities and got to market quickly is actually significant. The second is this, the aerospace growth partnership. Now there's a plethora of growth, par growth partnerships at the moment. Um, specifically ones of interest in this building are obviously aerospace, defense, security and resilience, cyber and space actually 14 at the moment, but uh, they're the big five that concern us here. Created in 2011 from the recognition that the UK was slipping behind, as you saw in that original statement, at a time where international airline requirements and hence manufacturers' programs were pushing towards the replacement of single-aisle airliners with something much greener and eco-friendly. And with that as the catalyst, and it was the binding catalyst in all these things, it's useful to have a binding catalyst. The, um, the, the strategy centers on the place of the UK aerospace industry in the design, development, and supply of strategic subsystems. Engines, wings, structures, uh, fuel systems, and avionics. There's 3,000 companies evolved in that enterprise currently. And out of that, I would just point out a couple of the nodes. The Aerospace Technology Institute. It exists to protect, exploit, and position leading-edge UK capabilities and preserve design and manufacturing jobs in what is actually now funded at £2 billion over seven years. And that seven is significant because that extends beyond the purview of a single government. Um, World-class academics and industry experts drive the UK's intellectual leadership in those areas, particularly in uh, its mainstream four pillars, aerodynamics, propulsion, aerostructures, and advanced systems. And it only has a small permanent staff. It actually acts as the catalyst in order to get the job done. 
Secondly, uh, of significance for nascent technologies uh, held with SMEs or university incubators, the National Aerospace Technology Programme, or known as NATEP. And again, it's aimed at the supply chain. It's aimed at helping with small amounts of money to develop technologies. And the, the interesting factor is that any winner of funding as an SME gets the benefit of mentorship and assistance from a prime or tier one company. In other words, in marketing, legal, and these sorts of things. And it is having results, uh, without a doubt. And the whole thing is showing results, because since 2011, when all this was constructed, the sector has grown by 14%. And in 2013, it grew by 9.4%. So, you know, the, the momentum is building up. And aerospace export growth, uh, sorry, aerospace export grew by 12% uh, to 24.7 billion in 2013. 74% of the 3,000 companies in that enterprise say they're going to increase their investment in the UK in the next 12 months we're seeing supply chains being reshored. Uh, we're seeing uh, one in four of those companies doing something similar in order to bolster their supply chain, reduce logistic costs, and increase quality. And I think quality is the thing that's really driving this. And uh, in the survey that ADS recently published, the majority of aerospace companies who are part of this said that they expect their own growth to exceed 10% next year. That is very good. There are three aspects on skills. The employee ownership of skills, which is about match funding of government money for particularly apprenticeships, but um, in-house continuation uh, training. The talent retention solution, which is uh, aimed at ensuring that engineers stay in engineering rather than drift off to consultancy or uh, even worse, banking. And then an MSc program, which was funded jointly by industry and um, the government, aimed at um, producing uh, or providing 500 MSc places over the next three years. In red, I think we'll come back to that. And the third solution is the Defence Growth Partnership. And here I need to give a health warning, because... This is going to be announced in detail next Monday and again on Wednesday at Farnborough. Uh, that's the document that's going to do it. That is uh, draft 11.6. I think we, uh, we hit the printers at draft 15.8. Uh, this is not unlike the Aerospace Growth Partnership, but it's about much broader than aerospace. It has the same sort of feel about it, improve the route to market, Let's get collaboration working, and boy, have we got collaboration working now. We've got 16 large gorillas in this zoo, and uh, at, for once, and the first time in my professional career, we have them all saying and doing the same thing. That is a powerful alliance. That uh, gives you a degree of sector capital, which we haven't had before. And then, obviously, uh, enabling skills, um, using the uh, supply chain as a value chain, uh, deriving the, um, the sort of funding models that we need, and then using a better and more sophisticated way of determining what the market wants, the export market wants in defence. 
but at a strategic horizon, and also using your understanding of technology and what is coming to shape that market. I think that's about as far as I can go without eating minister's sandwiches. But let me give you an example. Oh, I just thought I'd ring that business about skills in red again. But an example um, taken from the technology and enterprise team, which um, is um, my problem. Um, we recognize that one of the most important technologies at the moment is the requirement to be able to use advanced technology to understand what's going on on the ground. And within that, and this is a shared um, endeavor with the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory because it's recognized as one of their disruptive capabilities, but absolutely um, at the baseline of what we're trying to do. And there's a whole load of science and physics in that box there. Uh, but what we've got to do is make sense of it and get it towards the export market. And the barriers we have is, A, knowing what's going to work by understanding the market as well as prospecting well upstream. And then how do we manage the IPR? How do we fund through that valley of death? And what sort of business models can we um, deploy to do that? Possibly by teaming and alliancing, uh, and then getting this to market ahead of anybody else, and um, meeting a market demand. Um, because exporting is what it's all about. And it's no longer necessarily about exporting platforms. It could easily be systems, software, and sensors, incremental upgrade of existing, uh, existing customers, aircraft, or platforms. And interestingly, no one in this room would have predicted 20 years ago that BA Systems would be doing the upgrade program for the F-16. That's the nature of the business now. And identifying those nascent technologies, pulling them through, and getting those particular bits right, the IPR management through the valley of death and getting the funding that is amenable and works. And I said, there's nothing much new about this. It's just now we've got 16 gorillas aligned. We have a momentum and an ability potentially to pull it off. And we should pull it off because right now, uh, defense sector revenues are 22.1 billion represents 155,000 jobs, exports running average over 10 years at 6 billion pounds. Um, 2012 was a spectacular year at 8.8 .8 billion, but the problem is 82% of that is in the air domain. And whilst we all want that to continue, that isn't going to happen if we're realistic. So um, we have significant competition, as I said earlier, particularly from the US, and we also have a domestic customer whose perceptions of what they need in other uh, environments, such as a uh, Type 26, tends to be specified at a level above an exportable platform. And the Type 45 was a classic uh, case of that. But in amongst there somewhere is the notion that we can capture the brand UK aspect because it's based on the science and technology ecosystem. But um, this is uh, a challenge, and some of the, uh, the science involved in there is very challenging indeed. But the approach 
has to be systematic, and that's what we have not applied in the past. It has to be systematic to get over those barriers and therefore to be first to market. And the key point, I reiterate, is about industrial alignment. It is about the ability now to create relationships between primes and SMEs on a co-funded basis. And my team are sick to death of me saying, look, 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing, because if you're not careful, that's the way you end up. So we better think of some conclusions. Um, first of all, um, I think that there are solid strategic foundations now stimulated by government, particularly represented by the big nine technologies. David Willits has been a force for good in this. And you may know he's identified a number of technologies which is what the whole government um, industrial strategy is founding around. It's <clears throat> the way um, the Research Council money is divvied up, big data, space, robotics, and autonomous systems, all of which um, in our uh, specialist area. Synthetic biology, regenerative medicine, and agri-science, well, you never know. Uh, advanced materials, energy, and quantum computing. So, you know, there is a government who is articulating priorities in areas which uh, I find I agree with. Um, I think advanced manufacturers do need government support, but I need that myself to be seen as co-investment. I think you can't do this well without government when you're tapping into the ecosystem, which includes the research base and universities, because government is the glue for that. And as you saw with the way the um, catapults operate, if you haven't got something like the Technology Strategy Board or a Fraunhofer Institute with funding, it makes it difficult. I think light-touch industrial strategies, such as growth partnerships, do work. And I think the numbers um, out of the aerospace growth partnership speak to that. Um, and focused research funding is yielding results. And we're seeing in the, um, the AGP and the Aerospace Growth Partnership, we're seeing technology coming from SMEs being uh, moved to a much higher and more valuable level in the supply chain. And this is potentially sustainable beyond a single government. And uh, it's perhaps slightly helpful that uh, a lot of the initial thought came from Lord Mandelson, but um, I was interested, uh, the Labour Party commissioned a report by Mike Wright, who's uh, a Jaguar Land Rover director, and uh, is particularly on skills and engineering base. And speaking at the Global Manufacturing Festival, this must be true because it's in my Financial Times, uh, speaking at the Global Manufacturing Festival in Sheffield on Wednesday, that's last week, uh, Chukarumana's uh, Shadow Business Secretary promised a cross-government industrial strategy that would give business the confidence to invest. Quote, where they are working and valued by industry, we will build on the government's 11 sector strategies. We will look to develop them so that they have real impact all through an industry. Excellent. And finally, the jury, of course, is out on the Defence Growth Partnership, but I, I'm a glass-half-full person in that there are a number of factors 
that make this different, and I think it has real legs. So to answer my <coughs> own question, the aerospace technology enterprise, latent growth or losing ground, I think latent growth is a fair assessment, but there is a huge risk, and there's always a but and there's always a risk. And this is the risk. This is serious. <coughs> this skills deficit <coughs> is absolutely real. And if you think about uh, the Cold War environment that I grew up in, and the fact that I and my um, majority of my colleagues at school and at university were motivated towards science and technology, and particularly the aerospace industry. If you look at it now, at the um, way we're in an innovation crisis with an engineer drought, public perception of engineering as a career, and more particularly, if you look at the age profile of an average UK defence industry, you see, and this is not unlike the age profile in this society, except there's more youngsters doing their registration, but it's true. It's true. The, there is this age peak moving inexorably towards retirement age, and we have to replace that. Somehow we have to replace that. And interestingly, um, in the recent survey, 17% of aerospace businesses point to a lack of skilled workers as limiting growth. They find access to R&D specialists particularly difficult. And interestingly, uh, there were 3,100 uh, new places to read engineering um, over the nine years 2001 to the academic year 2011-12, but only 800 of those were taken by Brits. The rest were our future competitors. They were Middle East, Far East. Um, and so the environment is one thing and the age profile is another. If there's always a but, there's always a footnote. So our 1C camera that we saw in 1914 and the Royal Flying Corps aircraft became 100 years later the Royal Air Force's 2014 Raptor pod. Helmand Valley in 40 minutes in high definition um, sending you stream video while you go. Of course, this is the digital revolution. Unfortunately, Kodak, and that's their site in Harrow now, did not identify digital photography as a disruptive technology. And they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in 2012, sold their intellectual property and most of their uh, production and marketing capability uh, in order to survive in a small company which was bought by their pension fund doing commercial, large-scale commercial graphics, the big um, poster-type things that you need, going head-to-head -head with some of the biggest remaining companies in photography. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. 
This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.